God bless you. So good to see you today. Don't forget, next Sunday we, we are on foundation block, foundation stone number two as we work our way through the Ten Commandments, building godly generations. We're on commandment number two, the second building block. The key word, last time it was embracing, commandment number one. The second block is rejecting. There is the principle of of, of rejecting that which is evil while we embrace that which is good. Now, we have been uh, kind of on a roll here as we've begun this, this uh, uh, momentous year, 2020. You that have been here long know that in 2018 and 2019, we knew, and we knew prophetically, we knew ahead of time that it was going to be a year of some, some real testing it was going to be a time of refining, but we knew when we came into 2020 that it was going to be a year of clarification and intensification. We knew that uh, we're calling it a year of blessing, but I, I want us to understand what the blessing is. The blessing isn't just all of a sudden everything we want is dumped in our lap, but it's a year of blessing in that what God has been speaking to us and preparing us for the past decades is becoming clearer to us and he is in intensifying that dynamic in our lives. And the verse I want to look at today, actually two verses, is a strange one. It's, it's, it's not that it's hard to understand, it's just that it's hard to understand I mean, it's, what I mean by that is you read it and it's not a mysterious, it's not like the verse, uh, you know, back in the law of Moses, you know, at Parbar westward, two at the causeway and four at Parbar. It's not one of those verses that you have no idea what it means. You can read it and understand it, but the dynamic and the depth of it is counterintuitive. It's not what we think it would mean. I want to read it to you from King James uh, it's down a few lines in your outline. It says, how oft did they provoke him in the wilderness and grieve him in the desert? Yes, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. I want to talk to you today about what it means to limit the Holy One of Israel, what it means to limit God. Because we know that God is sovereign and powerful. We know that God does anything that he sets his heart to do. We know that. We know, you remember the big O's, we know that he's omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. But he's also omnipotent. He's all powerful. So what do we do with this verse when we come to it? It says that Israel, and this, this whole psalm is about Israel in the wilderness, and how they related to God and how they failed God and how they pleased him in some regards. But what does it mean to limit God? Now the um, Easy Steve version or the English Standard Version says they tested him and provoked him. They tempted and pained him, says the NASB. They put God to the test and vexed him is what you'll read if you have NIV this morning. They tested his patience and provoked him, New Living Translation. The Orthodox Jewish Bible puts it this way. They turned back, 
tested God and imposed limits on the God of Israel. I like that for by way of explanation. Um, imposed limits. And it's interesting that the Orthodox Jewish Bible says they turned back. Um, in the English Bible, it sounds like they turned back to Egypt, but that's not what the text means. The Hebrew is, is I think, very clear. It's not that they turned back to Egypt. They, they threatened to do that. But what they did, the, the word means this, or the translation means this. They turned to their old ways. They turned back and kept doing the same things over and over again. And boy, I know we don't like talking about it because the scripture says that 10 times in the wilderness, God gave them opportunity to, to shine. And 10 times they failed God. 10 times they failed God. Now, please hear me out as we lay some things out before you today. This verse, it's my contention, is that it's one of the most powerful verses for the Christian life in the Old Testament. But it's not understood well. This is what I want you to understand. It does not imply that the power of God was somehow hindered. You read this and on the surface it sounds like, well, God wanted to, but they, you know, it's like they, they put, you know, a spell on God and he couldn't do what he wanted to do. But loved ones, please, let's settle this once and for all. There's nothing too difficult for the Lord. And, and, and thinking that we can somehow bind, witches and curses can somehow bind the power of God. It's not like that. I'll tell you what it's like. It's like my brother who was a who was not only an excellent boxer, but he was an excellent street fighter. And I, 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 I was not. I mean, I tried to defend myself, but I didn't have his skills and his abilities, Roy. And I remember one time I got into college and I thought, well, I'm, I think I can take him, you know. And uh, we, we kind of uh, put the gloves on and kind of got out in the yard. And I think I was doing pretty good. I was just popping him here and there. And I thought, boy, I can handle this boy. And... Um, so I kind of moved in and I, I, I jabbed him a couple of pretty good times and I could tell I kind of made him mad. And I thought, okay, I got to be ready. And the next thing I know, he's saying, what day is it? What day is it? And then he says, how many fingers am I holding up? And I looked at him, said Thursday. He said, you're all right. You're all right. I, I found out that I was not diminishing my brother's skills by anything I did or thought I could do. So we do not serve a God that if we don't cooperate him, he doesn't need us to help him, you know, to somehow get up to his power. When I was a children's, when I was a children's pastor, we had a character that was always asleep and we had to yell to wake him up and the kids had to get louder and louder and louder to somehow get the character to wake up and they loved it and it worked off some energy. But God's not like that. He doesn't need us to praise a certain way to get him aroused. He doesn't even need us to have a certain level of faith to get his power to work. Can we just settle that to begin with? God's power is never affected. He has no equal. So it's not that they were limiting God's power you remember when uh, God told Moses to go into the presence of Pharaoh, cast down his rod, and the rod became a snake? And then Moses is a little discombobulated because the, the magicians 
in Pharaoh's court, threw down their rods, and they became snakes. And I can imagine for a moment, Moses and Aaron kind of looked at each other, this isn't in the handbook. So God said, no big deal. He just makes Moses' staff eat the other staffs. The serpents of Moses ate the serpents of Pharaoh. Um, we think about uh, when they came to arrest Jesus in the garden and the temple police are there. Some of the uh, Sadducees are there. Some of the religious leaders are there. And they very obviously come to take Jesus with overpowering force. And Jesus just says, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus. And Jesus responded, egoi me, I am he. And there is so much power because every time God speaks those words, I am, it's powerful. And he says, I am he. And resident in the power of those words was such grace and glory that they just fell out. And they arrested Jesus, but it's because he let them. So it's not an issue of power. I think we understand that. Let me tell you what I think is going on here. It's a matter of his will. When we limit the Holy One of Israel, we're not, so we're, we are not kryptonite to him. There is no kryptonite to God. But there is a principle, and it's rooted in the free agency of man, the free moral agency of man. It's rooted in the fact that God wants us to love him and serve him out of a heart of affection, not out of a heart of duty or because we have to. There's something that works in the spiritual realm, and what God is saying is, you'll never stop me from having the power. I could do whatever I want to do. Don't you remember Jesus told Pilate, he said, you can't do anything to me unless God lets you. I could call legions of angels and end this uh, uh, you know, kangaroo court right now. But there is a principle that every child of God needs to understand. God says, I know the plans that I have for you. I know what I have designated for your life. I know what I've ordained for you from the beginning of the world. And nothing can separate you from my power. We go to Romans 8. What can separate us from the love of God? Demons can't. Life can't. Death can't. Hunger can't. Persecution can't. The sword can't. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. But when you read through that uh, list you understand there's one thing that's not included, and that is we ourselves can limit what God does for us. Well, okay, you've got it. I can tell you're, you're quiet and you're saying, let's, let's move on. It's a matter of his will. It's a matter of us learning that not so and Lord, as Peter uttered when he was learning the lesson about the Gentiles, not so and Lord don't go together. They don't go together. Um, there was an English pastor that told such a beautiful story. Back in the 1800s, there was a young lady that um, was offered um, a very lucrative fortune as um, a concert violinist. All she had to do was go to the conservatory in London and complete her training, and she would be set for life. The only problem is that she felt the call of God on her life for missions. 
and she knew that that would be the end of her career. There was not a lot of call for um, uh, symphonies uh, in, in the, in the uh, Congo at that time. And she struggled and struggled. She talked to her pastor and she said, I know what God wants me to do, but I know what I want to do. And I'm throwing away the most unimaginably profitable and beautiful future if I don't say yes to the conservatory. And he took her to the passage in um, the book of Acts where the Lord said to Peter, arise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, not so, Lord. And that pastor very wisely said, it's your decision, but you need to understand that not so and Lord do not go together. And he gave her a little piece of paper. He said, you have to decide on Monday. She was speaking to him on a Saturday. He said, tomorrow during service, ask God to give you your answer. And you have to say, yes, Lord, or not so, Lord. And he was so, so brokenhearted. At the end of the Sunday morning service, she dashed out in tears. And he walked to the pew where she was sitting. He, she, he looked at that piece of paper and it said in big, bold letters, not so, Lord. Not so, Lord. He knew she had made her decision for a career in music. Not that there was anything wrong with that, but it wasn't God's purpose for her life. In despair, the pastor just began to weep and just dropped the note where he found it. He came in that night and saw her abounding with the joy of the Lord, worshiping and singing. And he said it was as though I wanted to tell her, honey, you can dance and shout all you want, but you can't celebrate disobedience. And he walked down to her during the altar time and he said, what has changed your demeanor? And she handed him the piece of paper and he looked at it and God had so dealt with her that afternoon. She came in before service, took the paper and struck through not so and left just Lord. She said, I understood then that God can keep all of his promises, but he needs me to let him be Lord. That's where God is bringing us, I think, as a congregation. And loved ones, will you let me speak prophetically for about five minutes before we start working through the outline? I think that we are coming to the place as a congregation that the battle is no longer about what we get. I think we Pentecostals and Charismatics, we have a tendency to work on our faith so that we can get what we want. But God is weaning us off the bottles of this world. And God is taking us to a level that most of us have never lived at before. I'm not saying that critically. I'm saying preachers included. Most of us don't live there. We work on our faith. We work on our theology so that we can cooperate and get whatever it is that we want and need. But God is moving us to the place where we learn obedience out of, as an act of love and devotion whether we get anything out of it or not it's not a popular verse you don't see this on refrigerators though he slay me yet will I trust him but loved ones I believe that's where God is bringing us it's no longer about what we get but about how we love let me 
take you just a little bit deeper. Don't worry. Don't worry. I've done this a few times. I know we got another service coming up. We go through the Old Testament and boy, we recite it. We sing about it. We remember the names of God. We remember God's name, you know, Yahweh. We remember the other names that he goes by from time to time. We remember his covenant name is Jehovah. And um, about eight or ten times you see Jehovah mixed into a compound form. And that was the way God was teaching his people about himself. He says, I am Jehovah, and then you see it combined, I am Jehovah Sidkenu. I am the Lord who makes you holy and, uh, or makes you righteous. And then we see it, another expression, Jehovah Makedesh. We get the word uh, kosher from it. He said, I'm not only the God that makes you holy, I'm the God that keeps you holy. And boy, when we get in a fight with the devil, he's Jehovah Nisi. He's the Lord, my banner of victory. And when we don't know what to do, he's Jehovah Rohi. He's the Lord, our shepherd. And David said, because the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything that I need. He's Jehovah Shammah. He's the Lord ever present. He's Jehovah Shalom. He's the Lord, our peace. He's Jehovah Rophe or Jehovah Rapha. He's the Lord, our healer. And we, oh, we sing about him. We dance about him. Those we put on our refrigerator. But can I tell you, there's another use of his compound name that you hardly ever hear anyone talk about. It comes from Deuteronomy um, 4.24, I think. He said, I am Jehovah Kana." You say, I don't know what that means, but I got a feeling we're about to find out. <laughs> he says, I am the Lord God, the jealous God. You say, Pastor, that doesn't fit. Jealous God. I don't like jealous. The Bible says jealousy is as cruel as the grave. Well, you got to remember, what's doctrine built of? Not a verse, but all the verses. And there is a very ugly jealousy. It's when you are jealous of what someone else has. And you get jealous because it's not yours. There's, there's ugly jealousy. You, you resent what God did for one because he didn't do it for you. And that's a bad jealousy. And that jealousy is cruel as the grave. But can I tell you there's also a holy jealousy? There's a righteous jealousy. It's the kind of jealousy that a husband can have for his wife. Now a husband does, or wife or husband, uh, uh, one spouse does not have the right to be jealous of their spouse's friends. See, I, I can't begrudge Ramona friendship and say, you have to spend all your time with me. First place, she'd probably kill me. <laughs> but that's, that's not a good jealousy. That's an ugly jealousy. Now, I, I think I have the right to say, if there's an objectionable friend, you know, better looking than I am or you get or male for that matter. I mean, nobody comes into that role between us. I, I can't be jealous of her relationship with God. I can't be jealous of her relationship with children, our, our children or our grandchildren. 
I can't be jealous of that. But I want to tell you something I can be, and it's a righteous jealousy. I have the right to be jealous to this extent. No man can treat her the way I treat her. No man can have the relationship with her that I have with her. She is my wife, and that's a relationship reserved for me. Nobody else has a right to that. Um, do you understand what I'm saying? And that's what's behind this holy jealousy. God says, I am jealous, and he says, I'm not going to get mad if somebody gives you a present. I'm not going to get mad if you love your children so much that you die for them. He said, I'm not, I'm not into that kind of jealousy. But he said, I want you to understand my relationship to you. This is when he's given the very foundation of the law. He says, I have the right because I am your God. I have redeemed you. I have the right to expect you to have a relationship with me unlike any other relationship you have in the world. That's what a husband and wife are. They have, a, they, they have other friends. They have other people that they love. They have other interests. But there is a sacred place where that man says, I love you like I love no one else. And that woman says, I love you like I love no one else. And nobody can have this kind of relationship with you except me. And she says, nobody can have this kind of relationship with you except me. There is a sacred zone. And loved ones, Christians have not been taught to live in that kind of relationship with the Lord. I'm here to propose to you that most Christians, or at least in the Western church, hold to an affection that is so one-sided and so distorted. Now, don't get me wrong. We are not going to heaven by our works. We can't get close enough to God to warrant a passage to heaven. That's totally by grace, totally by faith, not of works. But I want to tell you, loved ones, God desires us to have the kind of relationship with him where we are a head and shoulders above what we've ever been in our lives. And it's re it revolves around not our duty, although there is such a thing as duty, not being responsible, though there is such a thing as responsibility. It revolves around a passionate love and adoration and exaltation, affection, if you please, for the Lord, because there are things that will come out of affection and love that won't come out of anything else. We talk about discipline, and I believe in discipline. I think you start your devotional life with the Lord in discipline. But I want you to know discipline, as we've often said, is the lowest form of affection. It's the lowest form of devotion. D doing it because I have to do it. You want to have the kind of relationship when you leave home that your wife doesn't wonder where your heart is going when you drive out the driveway. You don't want to come home and say, oh, love you, honey. I was faithful to you today. Oh, but it was a battle. It was a battle. Those women at work, oh, that's not going to win her heart for you. She's not going to appreciate that. We ought to have the kind of relationship where no matter what we face, we, we come through the door and she looks in our eyes and knows there's not a way on planet earth that anybody else could touch our life and come between us and her. Now, I know that sounds a little hokey. I know it sounds, you know, a little, 
1950-ish. I know that. But I want to tell you, a lot of wonderful things came out of the 1950s. Uh, but as hokey as it may sound, I want to tell you, one of the things God is doing, remember this first foundational stone of embracing? God is raising up a remnant within the church. He's raising up a remnant that won't serve because they have to. They won't serve because of external motivation like numbers or pay or glory or fame. But it's from a heart of love, a heart of devotion. Let's, let's get into the outline here. We'll hurry. I know we've, we've got to hurry. There's a prophetic perspective that we need to take. And I won't take time to read this passage of Scripture. But the principle is found in Genesis chapter 18. It's the story of God coming with two angels to visit the household of Abraham. They have received a promise from the Lord. Abraham received direction from the Lord 25 years earlier, quarter of a century earlier, 24, um, where God said, I'm going to give you a child. And most of the story of Abraham that we read is him living out this promise. And now they're about a year away from fulfillment. They've tried things their own way. They've been up and down. Uh, they've, been, they've been high on faith, low on faith. And God says, about this time next year, I will visit you and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah laughs. She laughs. She remembers everything they've been through. Abraham is nearly 100. She's about 90. She said, shall, shall a woman my age have pleasure in conceiving a child and bringing it to term and raising this child? And then she says, and my husband, and the English is very polite and very structured, but it's almost like um, Sarah looks at him and says, Lord, look at him. Look at him. <coughs> and God asked a question because this was her response. This was her response. She laughed. She thought it was funny. She thought it was so unlikely. And I love the way God dealt with it. He didn't deal with it in, in rebuke. Hear me, loved ones, because God will work with our struggles to get us to this place that he was bringing Sarah is anything too hard for the Lord? When you and I struggle, he doesn't say, well, give me your views based on Old Testament considerations due to the extant Ugaritic texts. <laughs> he won't ask if you're Reformed or Arminian, probably. He won't ask if you were sprinkled or immersed. When we, when we come to the place where we're bogged and it's time to go to the next level, he will essentially ask you the same thing that he's asking Abraham and Sarah. Do you have the kind of relationship where you understand nothing's too difficult for me? Those of us going to Israel in a few weeks, we're going to go to the place where there's a church built over the rock where Jesus supposedly called his disciples and um, had the con and, and ate with them and had a conversation with Peter, and um, I I love the way he dealt Peter. Peter had all kinds of issues. I understand I, that's how I know his last name is Chitty. He just bears the family traits, and uh, 
Peter had gotten his theology wrong. He had gotten his pride in the wrong place. I mean, there's just all kinds of, you could have done a 12-week preaching series just to Peter to try to get him straight. But Jesus kept honing in on the same question. Do you remember what it was? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? You see, the Lord knows there's some foundational things that will get you through anything. And it's based, I know this sounds so elementary, but it revolves around the idea of how do we love the Lord? How do we express that love? Doctrine matters. It does matter what you believe. But you can have doctrine that's just as straight as a gun barrel and just as cold and empty. Remember the church at Ephesus, they were commended for their good doctrine, but something was wrong. They had lost their first love. Remember the words of Jeremiah the prophet when God spoke to him? The first message to Israel was this, I remember how it used to be. You were like a bride on her honeymoon. All you wanted to do was please me and become my delight like a bride wants to become the delight of her husband. He said, but you have left that. And he says, when you leave your love, you do two things invariably. We will do the same two things invariably. When we lose our first love, we will forsake the Lord, but we will always replace him with a, Jeremiah called it, a well that cannot hold water. We've come to the throne. We've seen the other side. <coughs> the writer of Hebrews says, there's not a chance in the world we will walk away from faith. The question is, what is our faith settling on? And is it a faith that says I have to or is it a faith that says I get to? That's all the difference in the world. And he says, this is the key question for you, Sarah, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Now, here's our challenge. It's in your notes. We are at a place that God is moving us because he wants our faith to be our dwelling place, not a place we visit on occasion. That's what God is doing in this church. Our affection goes deeper. Our affection goes deeper. You say, Pastor, but there's got to be deeper stuff than and love. Well, I don't know, 614 commandments, and they asked Jesus, which are the most important? Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus took all the deep, profound theological questions and said, these need to be observed, but the question is, do you love God with all of your heart? This is the warning that I want us to give as we move away from this first foundation stone of embracing we look at scripture and find it possible to actually put limitations on God when we fail to embrace a life of faith. Now, you're not limiting him. If you think you're limiting him, he's going to be asking you, how many fingers am I holding up? And you're going to say Thursday. <laughs> no, it's, it's more subtle than that. It's more, it's, it's more hidden than that. Let me just point out, a few ways very quickly today 
that we need to be on guard against. These are ways that we can limit what God is doing or, or what God wants to accomplish in our life. Not that we're limiting His power. You know, the day is coming. We sang about it today. In spite of the world's protestations, the day is coming when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming. Regardless, we win. Regardless, Jesus wins. We're not waiting for the court of the cosmos to decide if Satan wins or God wins. Jesus wins. <coughs> but we can hinder what God wants to do for us and through us. We can, to put it in a biblical term, we can end up in the wilderness instead of in the land. And it's our choice. That's why Jesus said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that have stoned the prophets and rejected everyone that has come to you. This is what he said, how often, or this is my plan. How often I would have gathered you together in safety like a mama hen gathers her chicks. But why didn't it happen? Because God lost power? No. But you were not willing. You were not willing. So let's look at these things. Number one, letter A on your outline. We may put limitations on God by our unwillingness. I just quoted the verse to you from Luke 13, 34. Um, he said, this is what I wanted to do, but you weren't willing. My mom, forgive me, those of you that have been here a while, you've heard me tell this story, but my mom said the, the day that obedience became important to me, she said I was a, a, a child, I didn't understand much about God, but I had just heard a sermon from our pastor on this passage in Luke, and she said, my life turned around on this day. She said, we had a, a fire that swept through the cotton field of my grandpa, of, of Grandpa Andrews. It swept through the field and just took everything out. And she said, I walked over the field, and she said, I was amazed at how thoroughly everything was destroyed. And she said, I saw one of my favorite chickens just sitting there in the middle of the field. He said she was dirty, she had ash all over her, but I recognized her and she told me the name, I don't remember. She says, but I thought, oh great, she's all right. And she said, I looked at her and she wouldn't move. And she said, I, I called her and, and she wouldn't move. She said, so I nudged her with my toe. And he said, I realized she had died in the fire. And she said, I wondered in a split second, why didn't you run? Why didn't you get away? And when she, she said, when I nudged her with my toe, out from under her ran six or eight chicks. And she said, I began to cry and I began to remember this verse that I had heard in church just the day before. She says, this is the way Jesus wants to take care of us. Jesus gives his life to care for us. And she said, I raised those little chickens who didn't have a mama. And every day that I tended to them, I wept thinking about the love of God and Jesus saying, this is what I want to do for you, but you were not willing. There's a second thing. We can put limitations on God, not only by our unwillingness, but our unconcern. Listen to what he says in Revelation 3. I correct and discipline everyone I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. This is the verse we use for sinners. He stands at the door and knocks. Open the door, let 
accept Jesus in. And I think that's a good message for sinners. But the message is to the church. He said, turn from your indifference. James reminds us that we must be doers of the word and not hearers only. There's a third thing that we need to beware of. There's unwillingness and unconcern. And this may seem a strange one, but from Isaiah 1, we put limitations on God by our unreasonableness. He says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. They're red like crimson. They will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. All of life, Israel was coming to understand, revolved around our reasonableness in considering the offer of the Lord. And I want to say this, and it's a sermon in itself, I don't have time, but everyone who comes to Christ will ultimately need to move past the offense of the mind. If you're waiting for Christianity to make sense, you may never come to Jesus because Christianity is logical, but we don't know everything about it. One of my favorite quotes, Sidlow Baxter, the Bible gives us enough information to make our faith intelligent but it withholds enough information so that our faith has room to grow. Number four, we can put limitations on God by our uncleanness. Back to Isaiah, he says to Israel who was saying, God must surely have lost power. Back to this text in Psalm 78, God must not be as powerful as he used to be. But this is what Isaiah said. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, his ear dull that it cannot hear. (coughs) He says, you've got it all wrong. It's not that God has grown old and he can't hear. It's not that God has lost the muscle tone in his strong right hand. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Your hands are defiled with blood. Your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. And then he said this, because you misunderstand that our cooperation with God opens the door for him to do his will... He says, woe unto those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. He was telling them there's never a right way to do a wrong thing. He said, you changing your theology like the average church in America has done, you saying the Bible doesn't mean this, or you saying the Bible can't be understood, or you're saying this, that, or the other, you calling light darkness and darkness light does not change the fact that God has all power, and if he's not working with you, it may be because you are working against him. Timothy says this, God's firm foundation stands. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And here's the last thing. We can put limitations on God by our unbelief. Now, those are five things that are very um, subterranean sometimes. They manifest in our lives and we don't understand it. Unwillingness, unconcern, unreasonableness, uncleanness, unbelief. Now, 
In Matthew 13, it says uh, that Jesus was responding to the rejection of the people. Prophets are not without honor except in their own country, in their own house. And he did not do many deeds of power there because of their unbelief. I want to submit to you, they did not bind God's hand and take his power away. But their unwillingness to believe prevented him from doing what he wanted to do for them. Parents, you know that sometimes the worst thing you can do is do what your children fully expect you to do. Oh, what stories I could tell. Mark 6, he could do no deed of power there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. He was amazed at their unbelief. Luke 22, when the day came, the assembly of the elders came of the people, both chief priests, scribes gathered together and they brought him to their council. They said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. He said, if I tell you, you will not believe. You know, I think we need to understand, loved ones, that unbelief is so treacherous that unbelief is not the inability to believe, it's the refusal to believe. And that's why we need to stand guard against any attitude, against any position, against any default mode in our lives that defaults into, well, God could if he loved me, but he won't. Let me read one more couple of verses out of Psalm 78. But they kept testing and rebelling against God most high. They did not obey his laws. They turned back and were as faithless as their parents. They were as undependable as a crooked bow. They angered God by building shrines to other gods. They made him jealous with their idols. Now, what I want to conclude with, and we don't have time to read it today. Uh, y'all took too much time talking at the beginning. <laughs> if y'all hadn't kept asking questions, I would have been through this already. But I do want you to understand when I say we can hinder God, I do want you to understand that God is willing to help us in uh, Mark chapter 9, when the man with the demonized son came to Jesus, he said, if you can help me, please do something. And Jesus said, if I can help you, don't you know that anything's possible to someone who believes? And this man did, I, if the Pentecostal charismatic movement had taught people to say this instead of trying to do magic with confession, you know, I confess I have faith. I confess I'm healed. You know, green gobs of snot are running from your nose. You're coughing your lungs out. I confess I'm, I'm healed. There comes a time to confess what God has spoken, but we taught people to confess what we wanted. He said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Now, if Jesus had been a charismatic television evangelist, he would have told him to go home fast and when he got his confession right come back but Jesus when he has these conversations he's just bringing us to the place where we understand where we are he says I believe but I've got unbelief there's a war going on in my mind Lord I love you but this has been so traumatic this is my baby boy I don't know what to do with this I believe but help my unbelief and Jesus went to work creating something 
that enabled that man to believe and trust. Now, what are our Christian life lessons? Very quickly, four of them. We must serve God on his terms, not those of our own making. Number two, faith is not automatic, but faith is natural in the life of every believer. And we need to position ourselves to let it rise to the surface. Number three, unbelief is not dealt with by verbal gymnastics or formulas, but by embracing the strength and fullness of Christ. And the last thing is that Jesus promises to meet us where we are, and then he begins to work in order to make belief our natural response. I want to conclude by just telling you one of my favorite stories from secular literature. It's... uh, from Jack London's book called The Call of the Wild. Um, I I went to see the the, the movie a couple of days ago, the new one with Harrison Ford. It was was really good. The problem with um, all of the Call of the Wild movies, I mean, with all of their, I mean, and it's a great movie. I recommend it. But um, I, I I am a reader, and to me, very seldom does a movie capture a book well. There's a few, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird and some others. And I was telling Molly when we went to see it, I said, the only problem I have with the movie is um, they, they leave out my favorite scene. And um, I don't mean to sound like I'm obsessed with the book, but, you know, somewhere in the book, chapter six. <laughs> um, it's the story of Buck coming into, into the possession of John John Thornton, and if, you if you're not familiar with the story, this may not mean much to you, but it really typifies, it really typifies what I'm trying to communicate. By chapter 6, John Thornton, who's the Harrison Ford's character in the movie, comes into possession of Buck, and chapter 6 covers a period of about 18 months to two years in which for, uh, Thornton saves Buck's life and Buck saves his life. They go back and forth, and I won't ruin the book for you, but it it becomes evident that Buck is developing an unconditional love for John Thornton and and he for Buck. Uh, Two things happen um, in the beginning of chapter 6 that show their their total devotion to each other, man and beast. And chapter 6 concludes with a story that's absolutely amazing. Now bear with me, this is worth going over. By this time, you're in, you're in love with Buck. He's dog of all dogs. You want to go home and change the name of your dog to Buck, you know. And there's a scene in a saloon where a man wants to buy Buck, and he, Thornton says Buck's not for sale, and one thing leads to, leads to another. And before you know it, you're there in the Yukon. Money's being placed on what Buck can and can't do. So somebody says, I'll bet X number of dollars that Buck can pull this sled loaded with a thousand pounds by himself, a sled that was a heavy load for a team of dogs, he can pull it a hundred yards. Well, John Thornton believes he can, nobody else believes he can, and it escalates. And They walk outside after the bed is taken and they find out that not only does he have to pull this sled um, a uh, hundred yards, but the sled has frozen. It's, there's been a snow while they're in the um, saloon. Temperature drops, and so the runners of the sled are frozen. And usually, what a, a, a prospector would do is he would take a pole and break 
the runners loose from the ice or the dogs couldn't move it. Well, it becomes big money now. Buck, can he break it loose and pull it a hundred yards? It's an emotional, tense part of the book. And Buck is an amazing dog, but I want to tell you what was so beautiful, what John Thornton did. He didn't appeal to Buck's strength. He didn't appeal to Buck's stamina. Jack London has spent six chapters painting the story of this dog and his devotion to a man. John Thornton understood something that I think all of us Christians need to understand. He got down on his knees and he whispered into Buck's ears, or he spoke to Buck, and he says, this is impossible. I would never ask you to do this under any other circumstances. Talking to Buck like Buck understands. He says, but you need to break out. You need to pull this 100 yards. And uh, then he does something that makes me cry every time I read it. He leans down into Buck's ear. It's between him and Buck. Nobody else can hear it. He says, Buck, it's impossible. But he says this, as you love me, Buck, as you love me. And Buck stands up and Thornton yells, gee, ha! Buck knows to turn left and right to break the sled loose. And then he says, mush! And in the book, Buck's sinews tighten his muscles and he begins to move it first an inch at a time, then a few feet. He collapses in exhaustion. And in the book, Buck remembers, as you love me, Buck, as you love me. And Buck gets up and he gains momentum and he gains momentum and he pulls the sled the hundred yards and Thornton meets him at the end and he embraces him and whispers in his ear, oh, I love you, Buck. I love you, Buck. And you did this because you love me. I squall. <laughs> I'm not trying to pull heartstrings. I'm trying to illustrate this. I believe as surely as I'm standing here that God is raising a remnant. He's raising churches that will be able to say, I'm not doing this because of my training. I'm not doing this because of my education. I'm not doing this because of my skill. I'm not doing this for reputation. I am doing what I'm doing because I love him. I love him. I know what God's been challenging me with He's been challenging me to move to the place where everything I do for him, he's able to say in my ear, as you love me, Stephen, as you love me, as you love me, Corey, as you love me, not as you're trained, not as your skill set will let you. As you love me, Catherine, as you love me, Philip, I am believe with all of my heart, the Spirit of the Lord is telling us the exploits that we will do in the days ahead are not because of our giftings, though God can use gifts. Not because of our talents, though God can certainly use talents. But you are about to see a generation of Christians rise 
that everything they do is because they've answered the question of Jesus at the place of failure like Peter, where the question becomes, do you love me? Do you love me? Let's bow our heads. We've, we've run out of time. Father, in the strong name of Jesus, we ask for your help. We realize that we can actually hinder your work in our lives by not cooperating and not loving, not having that pure heart of affection. Lord, this message has not been meant to, to, to bully people or to intimidate or to shame. Lord, that's, you, you don't work that way. You don't shame us into service. You don't bully us into service. You don't threaten us into service. Who, who would want a soulmate like that? But you tell us there is a deeper and more profound way and you ask the question, how much do you love me? You, you put it this way to the disciples, if you love me, keep my commandments. It wasn't, it wasn't an intimidation, it was an invitation. So Father, I ask you to come by the Holy Spirit right now over this congregation. We're asking you to do it on two more congregations today. We're saying, Holy Spirit, come and would you baptize us in love? Would you give us an experience of love like we've never known? Would you let every ounce of discipline and every ounce of self-denial, every ounce of service, would you let all of that take on a new form as love for Jesus? Lord, we want to be a part of the harvest. We want to be a part of the generational transfer to our children. We want to make Columbia a place where it's almost impossible to go to hell from. Lord, use us, but Lord, will you tenderize our heart? Will you help us like Ephesus? If we've lost our first love, will you help us to repent and do the first works again? Lord, we're asking you on that day of accounting, may we be presented as a church that did everything we did because we love you. Ministry team, would you move into the, uh, your assigned places today? Loved ones, hear me. If you are here and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, uh, maybe it's your first time with us or maybe you've grown up in this church, but you say, I'm just not sure that I've ever made Jesus my Lord. We want to extend to you an invitation, first of all, to come get with one of these ministry teams and all you have to do is just say, I want to know Jesus and they'll know what to do from there. Please don't feel like you can't know him before you leave here today. Everyone else, I know there's some that may need healing or prayer for various needs. The altar ministry teams are here for you. But for everyone else, I'm asking you to take a step into a brand new world. I'm asking you to take a step into a brand new dimension where it coming to God is no longer about what I can get, but about the love I can embrace. Stand, please. I know that you need to go. Some of you need to get to work. Others have second service ministry assignments. We're going to dismiss you within 90 seconds. I promise you that. As you go, I want you to go, whether it's right now or in a few moments, I want you to go with the blessing of the Lord upon you. May the Lord bless you and keep you.
May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you his peace, his rest, and his joy. Father, we are asking you to help us fall in love with you as never before. It's not to minimize what we have had. It's not to minimize the way we have served. But Lord, there's something deeper. There's something better. There's something purer than anything that has driven our service to this point. And it's affection for you. It's love for you. Be exalted in this place. Do something transforming by the power of the Holy Spirit in this congregation. We, Christian life, we bring ourselves to you. And we ask you to turn our hearts from lesser things, though good, to the greater thing. That's why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13, the greatest of these is love. Turn our hearts in Jesus' name. God bless you. If you have to go, God bless you. Thank you for being here. I'm going to ask as many of you as will to just come and fill the altar area. The, the worship team is going to lead us in adoration. And let's begin a brand new leg of the journey today, shall we? God bless you. Thank you for being here. I love you so much.